0: Oh well, good morning Good to see each one of you here this morning. as you can see there's a few things uh, spread around the stage this is kind of has a few purposes involved with it. obviously, it indicates our worship team. there's stars in our eyes here as they lead and worship also Philippians two verse 14 and following says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so we uh, shine like stars. We are to... um, Let the light of Jesus shine through us in a dark world. And so it does have, in a sense, that purpose as well. But we're going to find and discover that it also relates to Revelation chapter 1, which we will be looking at. I just have a few quick notes. I do want to express my uh, gratitude for yesterday as well. We were really blessed by having... Uh, The dinner with the Ukrainians and the program, and it was just a a real blessing uh, to be together as a church family, and that's what it is, Uh, you know, we're a church family, we're unique in that way, which we have some diversity within it, but we together Serving the Lord is an amazing thing as a church, and it was great to be here. I have two, uh, some exciting news. We have two young adults who've expressed the desire to be baptized. And so within the next few weeks, we're going to have a baptismal service. Those are always exciting times as we uh, want to follow in obedience to the Lord and baptism. So if you have trusted the Lord and you've put your faith and trust in Him as your Savior and Lord, and you have not been baptized, I would encourage you to consider Maybe talking to me after the service, and uh, we can help walk you through that process and what that means and the why tonight, as we continue to dig deeper into revelation, we will focus a bit on today as well this morning, but we 're going to have center our attention on what does scripture say about heaven? Now, many of us have a lot of questions when that topic comes up because throughout scripture you have a variety of different Of kind of aspects that come out of Scripture when it relates to heaven, and so we're going to kind of walk through a little bit of that tonight. And uh, so I'd encourage you to join with us. I'm looking forward to our missions conference in April. Uh, We've highlighted the bands and their work with Ethnos. They work alongside Dave Wright, which is an interesting concept because Dave Wright and I attended the same church growing up, and so. Uh, Dave and I worked in our our uh, Christian Service Brigade program together and uh, have uh, a friendship that way. Uh, Dave will be here in this area in February the 27th and 28th. Strathroy and the 27th walking through and presenting what the program is for Establish. It's a program from Genesis to Revelation, a discipleship program. And so if any is interested, I'm going to put a poster up that they sent to us And then he'll be in St. Thomas on the 28th. So that information would be available uh, to you. So you have that. We've begun a quest, a journey. We've begun to dig into the book of Revelation. Again, this is a book seldom preached from the front, but has many questions, has a lot of um, uh, kind of anticipation and excitement around what's taking place, but also a little bit of mystery surrounding the book. And so we are traveling through this book. It's a book of unveiling. A revealing of Jesus Christ. The book revealed to John by Jesus Himself. Made known by His angel or a messenger. We're told that blessed is the one that reads it. We're told that blessed is the hearer. And blessed is the doer. We are told that the time is near. The time is close. The time could be at any moment of Christ's return. Everything that has hap- that is happening right now is purposeful. It's planned. It is not taken God by surprise. In fact, it's unfolding just as God's plan has designed it to be. It's a part of God's redemptive story. We are to trust the one who has overcome. We are to trust the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings and uh, the, the kings of the earth. Jesus, the overcomer, we're told, loves us. He's freed us by his blood, that he has made us kings and priests in his kingdom. And when Jesus returns, every eye will see him and the world will mourn in recognition of their rebellion. The rebellious heart that they've had towards Him. And we'll continue in this series. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray as we again kind of come to Your Word this morning and as we look at what You have given to John to write to churches for their encouragement, to also challenge them, but most importantly to point to You, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we will catch a glimpse of who you are and what your purpose and plan is as it unfolds. And ultimately, what the ultimate goal is of the new heavens and the new earth, our presence with you for all eternity. You as King of kings and Lord of lords, that you will rule forever and ever. And Lord, we will enter into the eternal, uh, the eternal Uh, hope that we have of the future we look forward to that moment lord we're just walking through this life lord we're we're but a, a speck of dust here really as far as time and and yet you have a purpose and a plan for us even here but oh lord we look forward to that day where we will be entering into the glory of your presence so lord i just pray as we open up your word this morning that you'd speak to us and show us afresh who you are in jesus name Amen. So the question comes what will Jesus look like when you meet him face to face? We have many different, I guess, artists' renditions. We've seen uh, maybe movies that depict Jesus, but really, what will Jesus look like when we meet him face to face is a valid question. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read again Revelation chapter 1. It gives us our context. Uh, believe me, by the time we get to chapter 22, I will not start at chapter 1. To get to 22, we will move on next week. But uh, we're going to read again the entire chapter. It just helps us understand. The revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To Him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who have pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god who was and who who is and who was and who is to come the almighty i john your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in jesus was on the island called patmos on account of the word of god and the testimony of jesus i was in the spirit on the lord's day And I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were like white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at my feet as though dead, but he laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as For the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So verse 9 is where we're going to begin this morning. Verse 9, we find that this is the third time that there's a reference to John as the writer. John identifies himself as a brother, as a fellow a partner in the tribulation, small t, in the fact that there's there's some stuff that's happening, persecution along the way for the testimony of Jesus and the Word of Jesus. And so John identifies himself as that author. Did you know that Christians in John's day were considered atheists? Did you know that? they They were... Given this title, they were charged with this charge because they did not pay a homage and give recognition to Caesar as Lord, as King, as God. Nor did they recognize the Roman gods. And so that was the charge that they were charged with uh, in their persecution. Opposition is to be an expectation to those who truly carry the uncompromising message of the cross. Did you catch that? Opposition is our expectation. We should not be surprised when opposition comes if we uphold the message of the cross. It definitely is something that causes those around us either to get really worked up about or consider opposition to. The testimony of Jesus which John was banished for, is most naturally understood as to be the opposition that which he testified about Jesus. Right? So this was a testimony of Jesus, but it also carried with it the testimony about Jesus. Right? About who He was. Someone once said, when we are accepted by the world, It's time to take serious self-examination. And if we claim to be a follower of Jesus and we feel acceptance by the world, it might be time just to kind of reflect in self-examination as to where we really stand with Christ. John tells us he's on the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos is in the Aegean Sea. And Barnes describes Patmos as a, a... a lonely, des- desolate, barren, uninhabited, seldom visited place. it had all the uh, requisites which could be des- described, or could be desired as or as for a place of punishment and banishment to a place which would accomplish all that the persecutor wished to accomplish in silencing the apostle without putting him to death. Yet this exile, it didn't silence John whatsoever here. We find that he's writing a book that gets passed on. The ancient Christian historian Eusebius says, John was imprisoned at Patmos under the reign of Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian was the one who had most likely put him in and banished him to the island of Patmos Some say that upon Domitian's death in 96 AD that John was allowed to return to Ephesus. But we're not sure of that totally. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The literal translation here is I was in Spirit. He was in Spirit. Wolverood says in defining in Spirit as carried beyond normal sense into a state where God could reveal supernaturally the content of that he wanted to be written in this book. Right? There are four references in Revelation to John being in the Spirit. First, Patmos here in Revelation 1.10. Then in heaven in Revelation 4.2. Then in the wilderness in Revelation 17.3. And finally, on the mountain of God in Revelation 21.10. And so, John, he's either carried away or he's in Spirit... And this is where he's going to catch this vision that God has for him. John hears a loud voice like a trumpet behind him. W.A. Criswell says, The commandment came with a voice of a trumpet. The harbingers, an all-important message. An all-important revelation. When God spoke to the people on Mount Sinai from the mountain that burned with the presence of God... He spoke to them in the voice of a trumpet. And when the door was opened to the temple and all the people were called to worship each morning, the call was made with the sound of a trumpet. When the great and final resurrection on the day of the Lord shall come, it shall be with the voice of a trumpet of God. The great year of Jubilee for the Israelites was announced by a trumpet. And when the final silence of the dead of the grave, of the tomb, of the sepulchre is broken, it will be with the voice of a trumpet, calling God's people to their great and final eternal jubilee. With the voice of a trumpet, John is commanded to write these things for the people of God. There are, I was kind of thinking through as far as the trumpet scenario, there are many other references that would have been helpful as well within the Old Testament when it comes to the use of a trumpet, calling for battle, calling for God's people to worship, etc., that were found there. Gideon, another reference that I uh, I also thought of. Verse 11, so after he hears this voice, the voice is calling to him and says, John, write. Write what you see. Literally it means, what you are seeing, write. Write. The verb see is in the present tense, meaning right now, write this down. John's contribution here will be moment by moment observing what's taking place and recording these events down and the scenes that he sees that are brought before him while he's in the Spirit. This is going to be John's contribution to us. What he sees, what he experiences, he's going to write down so that we have this here. After writing, John is to send this book that he puts together to the seven churches. There's Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. You can see a map kind of up there. I apologize uh, um, that I had been given this. Uh, in a, and I took a picture, so that's why it's flashy. Some suggest that... These are because it was arranged in a roughly circular pattern if you look up on the screen. Others think that it was because these were postal districts in the Roman province of Asia. Of course, many believe that the seven churches were chosen because in the Bible, the set, number seven represents completeness. And these letters in all, the books of, in, in all the book of Revelation were written to the complete church not only these seven churches. Cius writes, the churches of all time are comprehended in seven. And he quotes many modern and ancient commentaries who would agree with him on that. And Poole says, it is the opinion of the very learned writers upon this book that our Lord by these seven churches signifies all the churches of Christ to the end of the world. And by... What he saith to them designs to show what shall be the state of churches in all the ages and what their duty is, what they're to do. It's interesting, someone pointed out that the Apostle Paul also wrote to seven churches. An interesting fact. Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica. So John, Paul also wrote to seven churches churches when he wrote. Notice the progression as John, first of all, he hears this trumpet. Then, with great expectation, turns to see what he is hearing. And then we will also look at the fact that in verse 17, he will fall to the ground or fall at the feet of Jesus as though He's dead. So it says, I turn to see the voice. The enduring Word commentary says, we can only imagine what went through John's mind as he turned. The voice he heard was probably not exactly the same as he remembered Jesus' voice to be. See, John describes it as a trumpet. Yet he knew from the voice's self-description, the Alpha and the Omega, that it was Jesus. He would have recognized it is Jesus, but maybe not necessarily recognized the voice this was John's opportunity. Can you imagine this? this was John's opportunity to see Jesus again, after knowing him so well during the years of his Jesus's earthly ministry. This is, the, this is John most likely who's reclining with Jesus at the Lord's uh, the, at the Passover supper, leaning against Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And, and he hasn't seen Jesus since the ascension. Can you imagine the anticipation John has upon seeing Jesus? So he heard now. He sees. What will Jesus look like? What's he going to see when he sees Him? And on turning, I saw. Verse 12-14 to 14, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking. To see who it was. And on turning, I I saw seven golden lampstands. Tried to figure them out here below you here. He sees seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands, or some would say it's the menorah which was used in the temple worship. The menorah was a candelabrum with seven candlesticks protruding from it. It was made of gold. It was in the temple. It represented the nation of Israel and its mission to be light to the nations. So that's what it represented as the menorah. So this could have been seven menorahs he's seen, or it could have been seven separate candlesticks that he sees. The Levites, it's interesting, who performed the priestly duty of the Old Testament, they camped around the glory of the Lord, which resided at the tabernacle. And you could see that in Numbers 1 and 1 Chronicles 9. The glory of the Lord was in the midst of the Levitical priests. It's sort of similar to the lampstands which represent the seven churches. Sort of like it's made up of us believers who are told that we're priests of God earlier on here in Revelation 1.6. That also the glory of the Lord is in our midst. Right? That the glory of God resides, the Lord resides within our midst. As well. It's one like the Son of Man he uses. this is a reference used 85 times in the Gospels. Son of Man. Son of Man. Son of Man. 83 times Jesus says it of himself. Fascinating just to think about for a minute. The, Jesus himself uses this term 83 times in reference to himself. It's used here by John as he sees him. One like the Son of Man, if we look at this description of the resurrection of Jesus as seen by john he 's clothed in a long robe and a golden sash, apparently a reference probably to the priestly garments. A long robe is everywhere in the east it 's a garment of dignity, a garment of honor. The high priest would would wear a sash around their chest, right, and so this could be something that we see. Represented here, the high priestly role of Jesus with the sash around His chest. Wool and snow also speak of sinlessness or purity. Hypothetical question might be to ask is whether Jesus would have had gray hair had He not been crucified and had lived. Gray hair is kind of a result of the curse, I think. No hair is even worse. I think, though, if I grew it in, I probably would have gray hair, though I'm assuming. But since the wages of death, the wages of sin is death, and Jesus knew no sin, I'm sure we can infer the answer is no. Right? Jesus, humanly speaking, wouldn't have white hair. So the white hair as wool is a description, it's, it's, it's something that. It defines who he is and the purity of him. The wisdom, possibly, of Jesus. Could also refer to the brightness of his glory. White hair and the head are connected, uh, also connect Jesus with the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 9. The term the Ancient of Days belongs to God the Father, yet it is also agreed with. With Christ, who is equal with the Father as his divine nature would indicate. Spurgeon says, We see, when we see the picture, his head and his hair, white as snow, we understand the antiquity of his reign. Christ reigns, Christ rules. We look at his eyes like a flame of fire. Fire is often associated with judgment in the scriptures. Jesus' eyes display the fire of searching and penetrating judgment. His eyes are singled out as being like a flame of fire. It evokes the image of a, a gaze which instantly pierces the deepest, darkest to the lay bare all of our sin. We say, hey, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm anticipating, I'm looking to see Jesus. I want to know what Jesus looks like. Well, the first thing I think you're going to realize is... With, when Jesus looks at us, it's going to pierce right through. right It pierces right through to our hearts. He, he sees it all. He understands what he not only understands, he sees what we are like in our sin. He sees through all of that. We can't hide anything from Jesus. Right? We can't hide our sin, we can't hide ourselves from him. He sees it all. in some sense, it's sort of like as He moves on to the feet, they're like uh, fine brass refined in a furnace. It's almost as if it speaks of judgment, but in the refining process to refine us in the purity of Christ. Jesus has been through the refiner's fire and He will bring us through that as well. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The glory of Jesus is so great so shining that it's hard to even look upon Him. I, when we see Jesus, I believe, face to face, it's going to be very difficult even to look upon Him because of His shining glory of who He is. It's, I think Matthew 17 helps us describe it for us. It's the same glory as He was seen in the transfiguration. When the disciples were brought up, three of them, and they saw Jesus transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, it says in Matthew 17. The above can be broken down into four categories. His majesty. If you look at the first portion, His majesty. The robe and the sash. They, they communicate His majesty. The white hair's and eyes, his purity. Jesus is pure. His feet and his voice are the authority. His voice is like the roar of many waters. And in his mouth, a sharp two edged sword also speaks of his authority. And finally, his shining and full strength is like his glory revealed to us. And it's the picture that John gets. So when we think, what does Jesus look like? Oh, this is what Jesus would look like. And His majesty, purity, authority, and power lays before us. What's the response? If you and I were to meet Jesus this morning, what would our response be? I think it would be similar to verse 17. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. All I could do, John says, is to fall down at His feet in recognition of who He is. What an amazing response that He has. If you bear with me, and I apologize, it's not on your sheets or in your translations this morning, but I'm going to read just quickly. I think it really helps us understand the vision of His glory by Anne Graham Lotz in verse 4 or page 4 it says i was a disciple of john the baptist for some time one day i was standing beside the river jordan when john when with john when he pointed out a rather ordinary looking man exclaiming look there goes jesus of nazareth he is the lamb of god who will take away the sin of the world he is the messiah the christ the unique son of god there is god walking on earth in human body. So I left John the Baptist and I followed Jesus. I was His disciple for three years. During that time I saw and I heard Him in every conceivable circumstance. I saw Him create sight in a man born blind. I saw Him cleanse lepers, walk on water, feed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. I saw Him raise Lazarus from the dead and I heard the sermon on the mount I saw all this with my own eyes but I will never forget that Thursday night when Jesus and the other disciples and I had eaten a meal together in the upper room in Jerusalem afterwards he took us to a secluded spot on the mount of olives for prayer but instead of praying I went to sleep he awakened me and asked if I would pray with him but oh how ashamed I am to admit it now I went back to sleep. Again he awakened me asking for prayer and again I went back to sleep. A third time he came needing me to watch and pray with him. But since I was still sleeping, he left me undisturbed. When I finally woke up, I saw Roman soldiers placing him under arrest, taking him off for trial before the religious leaders I followed at a distance. And because I'm a relative of the high priest, I was able to slip into the courtyard and watch the proceedings from there. With my own ears, I heard him accused of various false charges. In the end, I heard him convinced, uh, convicted of blasphemy, of claiming to be the unique Son of God. Then I watched as they took him to the Roman courts for trial. I saw him slapped, spat upon, and scourged until the flesh was ripped from his bones and his body glistered with blood. In fact, his appearance was so marred I could hardly recognize him as a man, much less my master and friend. I heard the crowd that gathered at the judgment hall begin to riot as they shouted in unison, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Then I heard with my own ears as seven different times the Roman court said, This man is innocent. This man is innocent. This man is innocent. But in the end I watched as the Roman governor Pilate washed his hands of responsibility and concluded, This man is innocent, but... You can crucify him. I followed at a distance as he was led out of Jerusalem to the place of execution known as Golgotha. There with my own eyes, I saw Jesus of Nazareth crucified on a Roman cross. I stood at the feet of the cross, foot of the cross, and I watched for six long agonizing hours as he hung on it. At one point, he even noticed me and asked if I would take care of his mother, who was also standing nearby. At the end of the six horrifying hours, I heard with my own ears, as I shouted with a loud, as he shouted with a loud voice, "It is finished." And I saw with my own eyes as he bowed his head and deliberately refused to take the next breath. I saw Jesus of Nazareth die on a Roman cross. There was no mistake; he was dead. At that point, my life fell apart. I was devastated. Everything I'd hoped for, all the dreams of the future, my whole reason for living had crumbled at the cross because I had thought Jesus was the Messiah. I had thought He was the Redeemer of Israel. I had thought He was the unique Son of God, God walking on earth in man's body. And He had died on a Roman cross as a common criminal. My whole world was shattered. I went back to the upper room in Jerusalem with the other disciples. We locked the door we barred the windows. We were scared of the Romans. Now that they had crucified Jesus, would they seek out His disciples and put us to death as well? In my confusion, anger, and grief, the hours ran together before I knew it. It was early Sunday morning, and someone was pounding on the door. I was terrified. I thought the Romans had come to get us. Then I heard a woman's voice. I opened the door, and it was Mary. She was hysterical, saying something about grave Robbers and the tomb being empty where Jesus had been buried, I looked at Peter. He looked at me, and we must have had the same thought because we both ran through the door, through the early morning streets of Jerusalem, until we came to the tomb where Jesus had been laid. And sure enough, the stone was rolled away. Just as Mary had said, I ran into the tomb, and I will never forget, never, what I saw with my own eyes nothing. The tomb was empty. Except for one thing the grave clothes were still there and there was something about them. I had witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead when his sister Martha had finished unwrapping him and the grave clothes were tumbled in a pile of filthy rags, but Jesus' clothes grave clothes were different. They did not look as though someone had unwound them. The grave clothes were lying as though the body was still inside. They looked like an empty cocoon, flattened and limp, they looked like the body had just evaporated right through them. And I stood there, looking at the grave clothes, and suddenly I knew that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. He was alive. But now I was more confused than ever. I went back to the upper room in Jerusalem with the other disciples again in fear. We locked the door and barred the windows. We talked about what we had seen, and we waited. Sunday afternoon and. Inside the locked room I suddenly heard with my own ears a similar a familiar voice the master's voice my heart seemed to stop but he said peace it is I do not be afraid I turned and with my own eyes I saw Jesus of Nazareth standing before me I saw the wounds on his brow where the crown of thorns had been embedded I saw the wounds in His hands and feet and the nails had been. I saw the wounds in His side where the soldiers had thrust the spear. I saw Jesus of Nazareth risen from the dead. He was alive. And for 40 days following the resurrection, I walked with Him and talked with Him and listened to Him speak. Then one day the other disciples and I were standing with Jesus on the Mount of Olives near Bethany. I listened to Him with my own ears as He taught us. Then with my own eyes... As He lifted His hands in blessing, I watched as His body slowly lifted up from the ground. I saw His physical body rise up through the air and disappear into the clouds. I saw with my own eyes Jesus of Nazareth ascend in heaven. And when I was staring up into the sky where I had seen Him disappear, two men in white suddenly appeared and said, Why are you standing around, staring off into space? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen Him go into heaven. And now I want to tell you that the same eyes and the same ears that saw and heard Jesus of Nazareth while He was on earth have seen Him come back. Let me tell you something of what I have seen. With my own eyes, I have seen worldwide pestilent pollution, persecution, famine so severe that wipes out a third of the earth's population. I have seen wars fought that were so destructive. The blood of those massacred rose to the height of a horse's bridle. I have seen stars falling from the sky and mountains falling into the sea. I have seen the beast rise up out of the sea that rules the world and the false prophet who does miracles in his name. I have seen demons swarming over the earth and I have seen angels and I have seen hell and I have seen heaven. And I have seen the sky unfold and the white horse appear whose rider is called Faithful and True, followed by his armies of heaven. I have seen Satan bound and Satan loosed and Satan thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. I have seen the old earth pass away and the new heaven and the new earth come down. And over it all, under it all, around it all, through it all, at the beginning of it all, and at the end of it all, I have seen Jesus Christ absolutely supreme as the victorious hope of the ages. Verse 17, with great expectation, I, as I'm reading through this, want to know if John falls down dead before Jesus, almost as if he's, he's dead before him in, in, in his posture, what happens? Right? What's going to take place? And you've got to read with me that Jesus lays a right hand on me. And says, Do not fear. I do not fear. You could have a whole sermon designated to do not fear when it comes to a response that we are given back as we would be in fear. But we're told, Do not fear. Do not fear. Fear not. I am the first, the last, the living one who died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And John, as there's great anticipation, what's next? He will realize the depths of Jesus' compassion and love for him. Fear not. I am the first, the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And John, with a comforting hand on his shoulder, is told, Do not fear. I am the one who has overcome. Right? I am the one who's overcome. I am the God of all eternity past and eternity future. My credentials are the resurrection, Jesus would say, and I live to never die again. The victory that I won over sin, Jesus would say, was permanent. It's a permanent victory. He would say, I didn't rise from the dead just to die again. And I hold the keys of death. I hold the keys of Hades in my hand, He would say. We need to stop right here and camp on this point as we kind of wrap things up. We need to build our entire lives on an important truth. Is your life firmly planted on an important truth? You need to settle this foundational doctrine in your mind. Our Lord, our King, our Savior is a living King. A living Lord and a living Savior. We are not following some man-made religious made-up institution or system. We are not committed to some instructions from an individual who died yet who remains in the grave or at best has his ashes scattered around. We do not follow that. We're committed to a Savior who is alive. Who is living. That is an amazing Point. No other religious system in the world can claim a living Savior. We have a living Savior. We're committed to a living person, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, forever and ever. Notice Jesus holds the keys. Some attribute the reign of hell and the devil to the devil. And some imagine Him having some sort of authority and power to determine life and death. Scripture teaches us that Jesus has the power and the authority over life and death, that He holds those keys to hell. And We need a fresh reminder this morning of a vision of Jesus. We need to renew our thinking when it comes to what we think about Jesus. We need to be humbled to our knees in recognition of Jesus as the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, The Prince of Peace. Jesus is the all-powerful. The One having all authority. The One who is in control. The One who is the hope of our future. The One who is the great conqueror of death and hell and evil and wickedness and Satan and the demonic forces. And over anything and anyone who would set themselves up as God, He is over all of that. And he, He is... Our King. Jesus says, John, write these things that you have seen. Write them down. Here's a vision of Jesus. And He approaches John and He says, write these things down. Begin by revealing and unveiling Me to the churches. Because the churches need to see Jesus. Again, friends, our church... And churches today need a fresh vision, a reminder of Jesus. That's who we serve. That's what it's all about. Then write about these things that are, which we have here. And next week we will begin by uncovering each letter written to each of the seven churches. The things that are there that he sees. And then write the things that will take place. A phrase that begins chapter 4 verse 1 after this. We will see what takes place. Heavenly Father, I just pray as we recognize here that you've given us this as a blessing. We realize John time and time again. And just a reminder through this that little reading that he continued to see and hear and experience all that you had for him while he was here on earth with you. And then again to realize that now as he's writing, he's writing about the things that you are showing him, things that he sees, the things that he hears, so that we would benefit from this. We would catch a fresh glimpse of you in all your glory. You are the overcomer. We do not have to fear death, the enemy, others, because, Lord, you are the overcomer. You've gone before. You are the one who has risen. You are a living Savior. And may that this morning just really warm our hearts and, and really cause us to, in our humility, recognize who you are. And that we would respond to you in our worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.